Welcome back to The Snap. This is a conversation with Dr. Tiffany Garner. Tiffany is an autism specialist. She did her pre-doc and postdoctoral fellowships at Mount Washington Pediatric, where she served as a diagnostician and feeding therapist. She then moved to Trellis in 2015, where she served as the director of psychological services, and she is now a part owner of Heartwood Psychology. We cover topics like the diagnosis of autism, autism's neurological basis, managing the entire range of the spectrum, autism in the public eye, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. Alrighty, so welcome to The Snap. I am here with Dr. Tiffany Garner. Tiffany, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mac. Thanks for having me. I'm really flattered that you asked me to be here. Um, all right. So to start us off, can you just give kind of like a little introduction to yourself? Um, where are you working now? How did you get there? Um, like your elevator pitch, just a quick little intro. Yeah. Okay. So I'll try to stick to the elevator speech because in <laughs> psychology, what we find out is you might not end up where you expected to start. So hmm. um, currently I am a part owner of a group practice called Heartwood Psychology, um, which is relatively newer group practice, although I've been in private practice for 12 years as a psychologist. Prior to that, I worked in institutions, um, first at Mount Washington Pediatric Hospital for a number of years, and then at Trellis Services, which is an autism service provider. So real quick, I'll say this is a second career for me. So I was actually an advertising copywriter for about eight years Mm -hmm. before I decided to go to graduate school um, to pursue my master's and doctoral degree in psychology. So it's been a long journey, but I'm happy to say I've got to where I think I was meant to be. Awesome. So what what prompted that switch from you from um, working advertising, copywriting to psychology and then eventually to work with um, children with autism? So when I initially was thinking of going to college, I was between psychology and advertising or something in that field. I loved magazines. I loved looking at magazines. I thought I wanted to be a magazine writer. Um, but I also have always been really drawn to children with difficulties and differences in some way. So some of my most rewarding college experiences were working with disadvantaged children or working as a reading tutor for kids that were having difficulty learning how to read. It was my work study job in college. But I was dissuaded from going into psychology um, because it's a heavy mental load and it can be hard not to take your work home with you at night. So I ended up going down that advertising pathway. I quickly discovered that I was not a good journalist because at that time I really didn't like asking people difficult questions. Interesting (laughs) that now my job has a lot to do with that. But, you know, long story short here on the advertising end is I really found that I spent a lot of time um, analyzing my creative director and talking with my other creative department employees, trying to figure things out and was just more and more um, not enjoying working 80 hours a week or being in an editing room at four o'clock in the morning. So it was around the time of 2008 when there was a lot of economic difficulties and I couldn't find jobs in other markets I wanted to work in, like New York or Austin, Texas. So I decided to reinvent myself and I went back to graduate school to pursue psychology. 
So as far as how I got to working with um, children with disabilities, you know, it didn't really start out that way. I knew that I wanted Mm -hmm. to work with kids. I'd always really enjoyed working with children. And what happened was, you know, in my doctoral degree, you had to choose child or adult track, and I chose the child track. And fortunately, um, as someone who was married and expecting their first child, because I was a much older student than my cohort, I ended up at Mount Washington Pediatric Hospital which was, you know, very close to my house. And I started requesting to see young kids because there was no one in the psychology department that would see kids really under five. And what I quickly discovered was that the referrals for young kids coming into the psychology department of that age had developmental delays. So this is how I fell Mm. into learning more about autism, which is different than some people that maybe have the luxury of following a big name in the field or somebody that does a lot of research and they choose their externship, internship, and postdoc opportunities to follow that person's work in their lab. I really, as a lot of things in my life, um, I did it backwards. I found something that really fit for me and I loved, and I had to seek out some of the supervision and training because there wasn't somebody in the department anymore that really specialized in early childhood work. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, That's a super interesting path to where you are. Um, And to me, as somebody who's about to go to college and try and figure everything out, it's kind of encouraging um, to see that you just kind of bounce around, but eventually kind of found your place and, and found what you wanted to do. Um, Yeah, you know, I'm really glad to hear you say that because one thing I noticed recently, so, you know, I was at the swim team party, the end of the year party for the swim team of our community pool, right? And they're sending off the seniors and they're announcing these amazing accomplishments of this mm -hmm. group of kids. And I could not believe the narrow majors that these kids had declared at Mm -hmm. 17 or 18 years old. You know, like when I went to school or your parents went to school, it didn't really work that way. Like liberal arts was more encouraged. You tried to be open-minded. And something that was really um, impressed upon me actually throughout my graduate school training was to not foreclose, which is when you make a decision early. It's like a psychobabble term. but not to not to be so set in making those decisions. I know it helps our anxiety. We like to have a plan. We like to know what we're doing. But opportunities pop up. And if you're open enough to choose them, you don't know what doors you'll go through. But what you start to do is you start to follow a path of things that feel good. We call that being egocentric. Again, more psychobabble for you. But things that are really natural to who you are and what you like. And you end up in those positions more often where you might um, you know, love your job more necessarily than the paycheck. So. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a great way to think about it. And I'll definitely try to heed that advice um, over the next couple of years. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so kind of shifting gears to thinking about um, families. Um, so what kind of awareness or knowledge of autism do most families kind of come in the door um, when they first come to see you um, as an autism specialist? What Where's like their knowledge base? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. And um Again, another true to psychology thing I'll say is it depends because it really depends on your community, where you work, the nature of your kind of work. So, for example, when I was at Mount Washington working in more of what's like a community mental health center in the psychology department of a pediatric hospital that serves the community and is on a bus line, you know, that population is different than the population that might walk into my private practice where we're a fee-for-service practice here. Um, So it can range anywhere from, 
nobody has said to me that my child might have autism, but something is not right to families that are walking in that are really seeking a diagnosis because it might get their child to the next level of service, to a more appropriate school placement, or to insurance reimbursement for services that they need. So it really is across the board. And unfortunately, we are going to see those delineations regarding social economic status, um, you know, and based on the level of knowledge, awareness, or education that a family might have when they come in the door. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how, if a family is, you know, almost entirely unaware of what autism is, how do they kind of end up like talking to you? Like where, like how do they get there? Yeah. So it's usually two things. One would be my child's not talking Mm -hmm. and, you know, parents are aware or they know like something's not right because my child doesn't have any words, but more often than that, it's actually behavior. So, you know, between two and three years old, what you're going to start to see in a child that's looking like they're on an autistic trajectory is they're going to start having meltdowns, temper tantrums, prolonged periods Mm -hmm. of frustration, take a really long time to self-regulate or calm down, and it might not make sense. And so the behavior is what we see because it's observable. Um, And so oftentimes families of really young children will just start talking to their pediatrician or they will have the awareness and have been referred to call agencies like infants and toddlers, which is the agency that will service kids that are very young, zero to three, for an evaluation or a concern that their child is showing some sort of um, abnormal developmental behavior. Sure, sure. And what what is kind of the root cause of, of that abnormal behavior? Um, yeah, good question. Um and a big one. So let sure. me let me think about kind of how to answer that or maybe even where yeah. we should go with this because I can talk about the neurology of autism or how it develops and what goes on and that might be something interesting to think about as I'll draw my curves and talk about brain development uh, in the early years and then we can talk about maybe some things that play out from that. So, you know, now We have really good science that will lead us to know that autism actually starts in utero when the baby and the brain are being formed in the mother's stomach or uterus, really, more accurately. So it can be very neurobiological. Certainly, there are things that can happen during pregnancy that we're trying to learn and understand more of that may cause autism. But it really starts between the second and third trimester of pregnancy because Mm. DNA very much dictates how the brain grows and forms. And autism is believed to be a condition of how the connections of the brain are formed and how the brain itself is formed. So an analogy I'll often use with families in my office is about the surround sound system of a stereo. So this might not be something that you're so into, and I'm happy to date myself on this. But when I was in high school, it was all about woofers and tweeters, right? So, you know, you have your head unit and then you have your components. And they all have to talk back and forth to each other. Again, used to be wires. Now it's all done by Bluetooth. But these different parts are all sending signals back and forth. So our brain is designed to work like an orchestra where things are all working in concert together. 
in on artistic brain, what is happening is the symphony is not necessarily all working in tune at the same time. So we might have sections or parts of the brain that work really, really well and very strongly. And our higher functioning people, they will often have savant-like skills or we see uneven brain processing. They're maybe super verbal. Then we might have the opposite in our less verbal people where the verbal centers of the brain are not as developed and they're not working as much, but they may be mathematically incredibly gifted, musically incredibly gifted. Um, and so the brain is just processing information at different levels. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. So uh, you mentioned that there were um, some individuals who it starts in, your, in utero um, in the womb. And then others, how I, I and I might be misunderstanding this, but it kind of develops along the way in pregnancy somehow. Um, is that is that am I misunderstanding that or is that no no you are understanding that because there okay. could be things that happen during pregnancy that can impact the growth and development sure. of the baby, right? Which right. then changes the way the brain develops um, and might cause those structural or neurological changes. So is there a distinct difference between the way um, those two kind of um, versions manifest themselves neurobiologically or is it very similar? So it can be a little bit of both and it depends on the level of autism that gets expressed. So here's something that I always found really fascinating and interesting. So what, you know, a child is born and immediately there are things that we notice about the baby, right? Mm -hmm. You hear a lot about eye contact and autism, and there's a lot of different theories, and there are even different camps of researchers that will have adamant disagreements about whether autism starts with differences in eye gaze and where a baby looks or how their motor functioning is developing. Or there's also the gut people, right? So there's all kinds of different theories, and we won't get into that today. But sure. let's just say that development is a series of experiences that are building on each other, kind of like a snowball, right? So in the first year of life, there are certain predictable markers. So when a baby will start to crawl, when a baby will start to walk, when they will babble, when they will say single words. And if we think back to um, some of the things and the misinformation that came out about vaccines is right around, you know, 12 to 18 months is when autism starts to create itself. So you will hear me say things like autism is a disorder that creates itself in the first three years of life. That hmm. means that it is often in higher functioning or less impaired autistic individuals that we start to see that they got off the ground and then the development went like this. So they started to become more withdrawn. They started to focus more on objects. They might've had some single words that now they're not using anymore. There's also some things about how the brain prunes, which is, you know, we are born with billions of neurons that we do mm -hmm. not use. And the more we use certain neurons, the more our brain will dedicate its internal sugars to strengthening them, laying down myelin on those neurons, and it gets tighter and tighter, tighter like a tree. So about, you know, interesting thing about sensory sensitivities and sensory processing is the brain 
prunes between three and five. We see people and kids with autism, also with ADHD, sometimes with other neurodiverse conditions that don't meet criteria for those diagnoses have increased sensory sensitivities. There are theories that bring that back to um, the pruning of the neurons between three and five. So that is a time when often with my early childhood work, I'll have families that come in and their kids are all of a sudden having these significant sensory sensitivities or sensory seeking behaviors during that time period. Mm. Mm. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. So thank you for indulging that uh, neurological tangent um, with me. <laughs> um, I guess. Totally a tangent. Yeah. While I geek yeah. out on neurology for a second. No, no, that was, that was great. That was great. So now kind of getting like back out of the weeds and back yes, to thinking please. about families. Sorry. Um, okay. Yeah, no, 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 don't, no, don't, don't apologize. That was awesome. Um, so walk me through kind of the first appointment. Um, so a family comes to you, they say, we think our child might have autism, or they say, we think something's wrong. We don't know what's going on. Um, so what happens now? Um, and kind of take me through some of the evalu evaluation procedures and, and kind of what your next steps are. Yeah, sure. You know, I would say it depends on how much a family knows when they come in based on how that first appointment goes. Because, you know, it is possible. And I do find that sometimes families are sent for an autism evaluation and they don't even know that they're being sent for an autism evaluation because the other providers have not even had the courage to say we think your child mm -hmm. might have autism. Um, and that's mm -hmm. another tangent. I'll kind of hold myself off from going down here. But typically the first appointment with myself or another provider that might be a developmental psychologist, a developmental pediatrician is gonna focus a lot on the early birth and development of that child. Because as I just said, that's when we start to see the first indications that development is not necessarily going according to plan. So you're going to answer a lot of questions about when your child walked, when your child talked, um, what their talking was like, what kind of sounds they made, what, how they got their needs met. In addition to that, we're going to ask a lot about behavior, um, their ability to deal with frustration, calm themselves down, the kind of behaviors and routines they might engage in to do that, and play or how they interact with objects and materials in their environment, because there are differences in how people without the autistic brain and people with the autistic brain interact with their environments. Mm -hmm. So that first mm -hmm. information is a lot of history gathering, a lot of talking about um, what it's like to be with that child or that person, because it's not always somebody that's young. You know, it may be an adult, mm -hmm. it may be a college student coming in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So for, for you, the first appointment is kind of just assembling the pieces of the puzzle and trying to get a, ge a general picture of, you know, what's going on um, with the child. Um, so what if you determine that that the child might have autism, um, what is kind of the response that that families often give to that? I guess it depends on the level of education and if they understand what autism means. Uh, but how do how do families typically kind of take that news? It also depends, Mac, on where they are in the process of mourning the loss of the expectation of a typically developing child. And I find that that tends to be a big piece of how these things play out. And every family is in a different spot or has had a different um, journey on getting to that first appointment. For some families, 
it's a relief because they feel seen and heard because they've been Mm -hmm. saying there's something not right. And perhaps another provider has been telling them it's fine. It's fine. Just wait and see, Mm -hmm. you know, again, sidebar, you know, I had a father once punch the wall in my office at Mount Washington because their child had been nonverbal for some time, had been told over and over again, boys talk late, just give it some time. And this mm. par- these parents were really grieving and they felt like they had lost an opportunity to start early intervention. I've also mm. had parents, you know, come to tears because they feel like somebody understands what they've been going mm. through and they just want to know or they understand that this is a marker on the way to getting their child the services that they need. But yeah, you know, if I had to say across the board and make a generalization, it's pretty scary. Um, you know, as a parent myself, like just thinking that something minor is wrong with your child can be very anxiety producing, but this is a big thing. So to start to go through the process of knowing that your child is now going to come back and be tested and be told that they have a lifelong condition can be pretty overwhelming. Right. Right. And so what like for the family after they see you um they learn that the child has autism then like what do they do <laughs> like after that like where do they go so they they have mm-hmm. this like this huge you know like realization and, and this new information um what can they do with that new information yeah so there will usually be one to two testing appointments where I'm actually administering specific measures and looking for specific data and things. Yeah. So, you know, I should say there's a consultation appointment that's history gathering, and then there's actually working with a child, either, you know, usually in the office, sometimes through COVID was on a video while they're in their house. Sometimes I do a play-based observation in my office, people, teachers, I, I go to schools and observe kids in their school environment if it's needed and they're really young. So we're on that journey together. So for me, or when I'm the person doing that, I want to really work with the family and hold their hand through what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm always leading toward the fact that this, again, is just like mile marker seven in the marathon. And at 10, 11, and 12, there are therapies that are going to improve the development of your child. So that's where we get to. So this is a stop on the way to accessing services, which is a word that you'll hear a lot that look different depending on how autistic somebody is or where they are on that spectrum. But in order Mm -hmm. to really formulate a treatment plan, know what are the right services or put together that program for that person, we really need to know you know, do or do they not show characteristics of the autistic brain style? And where are those characteristics being expressed? I will even go so Mm. far as to say that I see a lot of gray zone cases, which is what I call them when you're not quite sure where that line goes. And at, at some point, it doesn't matter so much yes or no, but it's how do we support the growth and development that we want to see? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And kind of, um, jumping off of this idea of gray zone cases. So let's take a hypothetical individual who presents, you know, a lot of the characteristics that, that an autistic individual might present, um, meaning like an anxiety disorder, language disorder, math disorder, um, plus things like stimming and, and sensory overload induced tantrums, um, but they haven't been diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. What would kind of the advantage of getting that autistic label be for them um, rather than just being considered somebody with a general developmental disability? Yeah. Understanding. 
I think, and empathy, tolerance, and even the ability to lean into the neurodiversity. To me, it always comes down to seeing the world through the child or person's eyes. And if we can understand what it's like to be that kid, that person, all of a sudden things can start to fall into place. And I think we all just want to be seen and heard and understood. And if we don't understand why our kids do what they do, when they do what they do, it becomes really hard. And we place a lot of judgments based on our own stuff and our own expectations. So I think that that is really important to put the pieces of the puzzle together and see the whole brain child, not just the behavior, not just the tantrum, not just the math challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think whether we like it or not, labels are like a massive um, like medium through which we understand the world, right? So like if, if you're looking at somebody and you're able to put some kind of label to them, that'll help you um, kind of define that person in your mind for, for good or for bad. Um, and similarly, on the other side of things, I think attaching a label to yourself can help you kind of better self-identify with who you are. Um, and, and there are positives and negatives to this, but I, I think I agree with you that, that in this scenario, um, it, it is absolutely helpful to have that label of autism, um, just kind of to better understand, you know, what's actually going on um, and kind of put it, put it in a, you know, an easily comprehensible box. Yeah, I mean, we're box driven. And I think some of it comes from if we go back to brain stuff, when I geek out on the brain again, is our brain takes up so much of our energy, it wants to do the least amount of work possible, because it has a lot to do. And when we can mm -hmm. understand something under an umbrella or a construct or a box, it allows us to kind of put that in place and move on to something else. Mm -hmm. I think from a bigger societal picture, we all just want to understand and feel like we know what we're dealing with. On yeah. the clinical side, I will say, you know, I, parents come in all the time. They don't want their child to be labeled. They don't want their child to be labeled. We live in a label driven system. If you want to yeah. use insurance money to pay for this evaluation, there has to be a label. Right. If you want the school system to provide services, there has to be a condition for which the services are being provided. From a treatment standpoint, I can't choose the right treatment or method or therapeutic approach if I don't know what I'm dealing with, because I might think it's one thing and it's actually something else. You know, kids come in all the mm. time. They're not responding to OCD treatment. They're not responding to OCD treatment. They come in and I'm like, it's not OCD. It's a repetitive yeah. behavior, right? So mm. let's stop increasing and increasing and increasing a medication that is not going to appropriately treat, you know, or get rid of something that actually might be something that the child needs to do in order to feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of getting a sense that in a way, um, high quality labels are essential um, for, for, you know, meaningful care. Uh, but I also think that the ideal situation here would be, and I don't, I, not that healthcare providers are, are the people that are guilty of this, but having these labels, but also um, kind of maintaining an awareness that there's nuance and ca caveats beyond those labels, right? There's a label on the surface, but you got to dig beyond that in order, in order to fully understand um, whatever the situation is with the individual. And um, I think we can totally say that healthcare providers and schools are guilty of overlabeling mm. all kinds of people and mislabeling people too, you know, and, and I think that's okay. And I think those are important conversations for people to have and things for them to think about, you know, sure. and providers are different and they have different styles and school systems and hospital systems are different too. And, 
you know, you could do a whole podcast on all the problems with labeling yeah. and mislabeling because it does lead to the wrong treatment or the wrong approach. Yeah. Um, but I think that in, in a lot of cases, it can be important. But look, I've also had lots of cases I've done where I've decided not to put a label on what was going on for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where it comes down to, you know, what is the label going to be used for? And is it going to actually get someone closer to things that are helpful or help do the most good for them? Or is it actually going to move us more toward a harm situation? Right, right. Absolutely. And what do you think? So th- this seems like a huge problem. The fact that there are, you know, healthcare providers in schools who are, you know, mis- mislabeling. What do you think the origin of that problem is? And, and what are steps that could be taken to fix that? And I know that's a big question, uh, uh, but what just kind of what are your first thoughts there? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a big question. And I think it probably also depends on the condition. I think ADHD is one of the big ones that has a huge culture of misuse, overuse, or I will actually say also underuse because, you know, a lot of times when I'm diagnosing a child with ADHD, I have a parent who's saying, you know, when I was a kid, nobody talked about this. They just told me I was bad. And, you know, or, um, they were prescribed Ritalin and then there was a whole culture around overprescribing or is Ritalin prescribed too much? And, and it really, like we could do a history of psychology or labeling and go through different decades, I think, and, and probably somebody could write a paper about what that's like. I, I think that, um, oh, you know, dare I say this, but pharmaceutical companies have a lot to do with this. So mm-hmm. the, Another tangent, Mac, I won't take us down too much, but is that the manual on my shelf of the diagnostic, the DSM, which is Mm -hmm. our diagnostic manual for mental health, the research in that is funded by pharmaceutical companies. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, what you're going to see is Mm -hmm. a proclivity toward things that there's a medication for. Something that I'll Mm -hmm. often say and share here is that the World Health Organization has a diagnosis for frontal lobe and executive function deficit. So this is executive function weaknesses that are not necessarily difficulties paying attention. We are the only country in the world that doesn't have that diagnosis in our manual. Mm. Um, And so that's really interesting to me because there's not a medication for executive function weaknesses, but there's medication for attention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. So I think that some of it is that. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately that leads to possibly tendencies to underdiagnose or overdiagnose. But again, our brain science and psychology is really young. And in a lot of ways, like we don't have the technology to measure neurochemistry, neurotransmitters, and to actually map out brain connections yet. Um, and so we're dealing with observable things and that makes the science a little bit different. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of getting back um, to autistic individuals, um, I saw, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are either currently doing research or have done research um, working to increase the identification of ASD in toddlers. Is that true? Or- so I did. I'm no longer on the project, yeah, but no for about okay. two years, I did work on a project um, that was designed to do some research actually to support a questionnaire that pediatricians will use to early identify 
kids that are looking like they're expressing symptoms of autism. Um, but yes, I did. I did work on that project for some time. So what are the kind of advantages of this early of a diagnosis? So treatment, um, therapies and changing that developmental trajectory. So I did this before my, my little curves, you know, kids with that are developing in the expected way will go this way and kids who are developing autism will do this and then they will go this way. So what we're trying to do with that early identification is we're trying to turn the curve around and to get it to back to more closely approximate a normal developmental curve. So by identifying, and now, I mean, we have measures that you can use as early as 12 months, 18 months. There are eye gaze studies where they are putting babies in booths and tracking their eye gaze to try to map out, are they entering the world from a sensory perspective or are they entering the world from a relational perspective? And by identifying that early on, we can start working on where a baby is attending, how they are processing information in hopes of continuing to move development along in a way that will create skills and abilities that that person is going to need in order to navigate life. Sure. Sure. Gotcha. Um, So shifting gears now to talking about kind of the breadth of the spectrum. So autism is a spectrum. So there's, you know, people who individuals who are extraordinarily high functioning, you know, maybe uh, who could potentially be labeled with Asperger syndrome. Um, to a low-functioning individual who would sh- struggle to ever live independently. How do you, you know, from your perspective as an autism specialist, kind of approach the breadth of this range? Um, you know, for example, what kind of advice and or medication do you offer as someone who's, you know, very high-functioning versus somebody who is not? So I'll say I'm a psychologist, so there's no medication involved in any way that I practice because that would mm-hmm. be a psychiatrist. Um, but right. to speak about this broad range. You know, I, I myself personally, as a provider, am much more focused on what are the what is the pattern of strengths and vulnerabilities that someone is displaying, as I'm getting to know them or work with them. So it is much Mm -hmm. less to me about where that diagnostic wand is going to land. And really understanding how that person's brain works together and how that contributes to them being who they are. There's some really interesting research that came out maybe three or four weeks ago. Um, And again, we're starting to get some really interesting fMRI studies where we're looking at the images of brains and comparing them. And what this study showed is that the brains of people with ADHD, OCD, and autism looked much more similar to each other than the brains of all these Mm. other people and these other conditions. And so if I can Mm -hmm. even open up that spectrum from pervasive, what used to be before 2012 or 13, pervasive developmental disorder, Asperger's and autism, and now we go level one, level two, level three, we would even say ADHD, OCD, right? You mentioned some of the learning disabilities that can show up in learners with that kind of a profile. So we have brains over here that are similar and maybe more similar to each other. Gotcha. Right. So you're not necessarily trying to like pinpoint where somebody is, you know, on the spectrum. It's more about approaching it, you know, fully for the individual, where are their strengths, where are their weaknesses, and then designing kind of a plan from there. Yeah. Do you, and I, I talked about this in the last podcast um, with Salvaditas, but do you kind of push for awareness of disability? Um, meaning, do you want the child to know that they are autistic? 
Um, this is something that I've thought a lot about personally, but I think it's almost about this balance between a knowledge of what autism is and what it means and what its implications are um, without that fact existing as kind of a conscious strain or, or stain on progress. Um, so how do you kind of a- approach that balance? Yeah, I think it's about how you do it and what you say and also the culture around the family. So I absolutely feel very, very strongly that the child needs to know because they already know and they start to figure it out. Obviously, I mean, this is different from the nonverbal kid that, you know, I might be working with their family or other things to the really intelligent 10 year old that is starting to have a lot of anxiety and low mood symptoms because they just feel like they're different and they're frustrated and they don't understand why. I mean, that is an awful way to feel about yourself and have people withholding information to you that could help you understand who you are. I think we all have a right to know who we are. I actually think that we're better people when we understand our own stuff. And so again, there are mean ages for diagnosis, four and a half and 11, and that's when we see a big spike. Those kids that are in fifth grade are going to transition to middle school feel different and they are starting to struggle on figuring that out. You know, I'm seeing here in my office now the TikTok phenomenon of everybody self-diagnosing and it's a big thing, um, you know, with mental health providers that we've been talking about a lot. But these 14 and 15 year olds that are coming into my office or 18 year olds that want to be tested and are asking to be tested, it's because they know that they're different. And they have so much anxiety because they don't know if that's true or not, or they're afraid of what they do and don't have. Mm. And when we can finally deal with that, they can Mm. start to go through that normal grieving process or coming to terms with, and it gives them permission to start to embrace their neurodiversity instead of fighting it or wrestling with it. So um, I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. It's almost kind of going back to that conversation about labels that we were having um, at first, it, it's probably incredibly discouraging to kind of put that label on it. But I think once you grapple with that, um, it allows for you to kind of take those steps forward and better understand yourself. Um, yeah, Mac, you have a really great understanding about how these things work. And, you know, I watch those Kubler-Ross stages of grief play out mm. in kids and families. You know, that first stage is a lot of denial and then comes yeah. the anger. And I've unfortunately had kids that took it really, really hard that now there was something else wrong with them. And it did take them a while to work through it. Whereas I've had other kids just kind of be like to their parents, see, I told you, you know, and would you now just let me be who I am? Um, And it's fascinating to watch. And I always feel really honored to be able to go on that journey with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So now kind of getting to to autism kind of in society and and in culture, Mm -hmm. I think interestingly, and pretty disappointingly, um, and for me, this is a big motivation on why I wanted to do this podcast. But autism has kind of seeped into popular culture in a lot of ways. Um, and I think this is partly a generational thing. But I regularly see, you know, memes um, making fun of autism. And the phrase, you know, you're autistic is said like pretty, pretty often. So people kind of have an existent or an awareness of the existence of autism. Uh, but I think very few people actually understand, you know, what it is and what that means. Um, and I'm sure this kind of misunderstanding makes its way to people who come to see you as well. Um, so I guess my question is, what are the most common misconceptions about autism that you see? And 
also kind of a two-parter. How and why do you think that's made its way into popular culture? Yeah, I've totally seen what you've seen as well. You know, Mac, I have um, a young teenager and also a late elementary school age child. And I've seen in their peer groups or conversations with their friends in my car or heard things that they're saying to each other that like, you know, you're autistic. It's being used as like an insult. You know, it's the same as like saying that you're a jerk or whatever else. I mean, we, you know, could go back and think of through the history of time, those words that, yeah. you know, like you're a blubberhead or whatever else. And it's like, I'm like, what, you know, when did, when did that become something to call someone? And I, I think what you've said is it's come from this growing awareness. A lot of them have kids in their classrooms that are autistic and they know that they're supposed to accept them and be understanding. But the reality is that these kids do things in the classroom that are sometimes scary or they don't understand. And other kids might feel unsafe because they don't understand it and they don't know when it's happening. Mm. On the other side of that coin is me as a clinical provider. And for years, one of the biggest challenges I've had is the misinformation from pediatricians. I mean, there is still this perception that if I see a child for 15 minutes and they make eye contact with me, that they couldn't possibly be on the spectrum. Hmm. And I'm like, what? Like, that is such a narrow understanding of brain development and symptom expression and how all these things work together. I mean, I would never make an assumption based on 15 minutes with someone. But these are the kinds of things that can lead to misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis or misperception of what autism is. Autism is not about eye contact, um, you know, or flapping your hands. It is about so much more than that. And that's where, you know, neurodiversity and really understanding what that means and what it looks like becomes really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this kind of connects to this broader issue of misunderstanding of science, um, you know, in, in society, just kind of at large. Um, you know, scientific topics are incredibly specific and people dedicate their lives to you know, a very narrow slice of, of a specific aspect of, you know, a, a developmental disability or a specific aspect of, you know, any other kind of scientific topic. Um, so it's very difficult for somebody who doesn't really spend any time thinking about that at all to, you know, um, suddenly understand, you know, an incredibly nuanced and, and complicated topic. Uh, but I also think that's that's incredibly inco- important, right? Because if we all understood, um, you know, if we're taking autism as an example, if we all understood that a little bit more, it could lead to a much more empathetic um, society. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, like, I mean, I, I love pediatricians. I work so closely with them all the time and neurodevelopmental pediatricians and, and their job is really hard. They have Mm. to know about so many different things. And so you think about that too, like, what is the elevator speech? What is the sound bite that you want a general provider or an infants and toddlers or child find therapist taking with them out into the world that says, these are the things, and Mm. this is the way. And then we get back into these different ways of this old way of thinking about communication and repetitive behavior and eye contact to some more newer ways of thinking about autism, which I mentioned before, which is, do I enter the world from a relational perspective? And everything I'm looking at and getting information on is about 
relationships? Or do I enter the world from a sensory perspective where I'm object oriented and that's what I focus on? You know, and, and these are different ways of newer people in the field with newer testing measures and newer research that are reframing what we understand as it is in autism. Mm-hmm. I will say that Autism Speaks is an amazing organization. They did some beautiful PSA commercials mm-hmm. that are illustrated and, and were on TV maybe two or three years ago about an autistic child and what that's like to be in their world. They had some billboards for a while that were really beautiful and nice. Mm. Um, And I think they did a really good job of emphasizing some things. Some of that was sensory, but now, you know, a lot of people think that just if someone has sensory sensitivities that they have autism. Mm. And again, it's a complex condition. So it becomes really difficult to break it down um, into that one or two sentences. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of taking another step back and, and maybe lightening this up a little bit, what are what are the kind of the most the most interesting story that you have uh, um, from from, you know, your practice? Oh, gosh, you know, I have been working and testing kids with autism for, you know, over a decade. So I just have come to absolutely love all of that work and the things that come up and the way they play out because it can be really fun and so interesting when, you know, you're someone that's in the space of like, I can join them in their world and where they're at. But, you know, one, one thing comes to mind of when I was working at Mount Washington and I'm sitting in a a very clinical testing room and I'm at a desk with this kiddo and he was probably maybe I want to say like a third or fourth grader, right? So like he wasn't too young. We're sitting at a table, hospital policy, you have to wear closed toed shoes. It's the summer. I don't know. I had a pair of shoes I had had for a really long time. So we're working and I must have, I slipped off my shoes under the table and he sits back and he goes, oh my God, what is that smell? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no way. And I was like, pull out my booklet. And I'm like, yep, great sensory powers. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I I love how it led to like, to to, to great understanding somehow that that's unbelievable. And, you know, and, and it was also, you know, this kid had six flag maps all over the table. So this was his thing, right? Mm. So six flags was his thing. He had those maps memorized. He brought them with them all the time. And so on his breaks, he wanted to take me through the park on these maps and talk to me about the rides. And so, you know, work, break, work, break. We do stuff. Then we walk through Six Flags. And the cool thing about this kid is, you know, when we understand autism, we know that he is actually in his mind and it feels so real to him in his mind that he's walking through the park, Mm, you know, and while I'm sitting there in the room. So I'll tell you another one is, um, and I don't remember where I was when this happened, but it's another similar one of these sensory things where I walked into the room and I sat down to work with this this kid and he leans in and he goes, what brand of toothpaste do you use? Because I guess he could smell the fact that I just brushed my teeth before I walked in the room. So that was a really interesting one. I'll tell you one more that's one, if I can, that um, I recently actually told to my kids and their friends to help them understand something. And they asked me to retell it. And this one's a little bit more bizarre, but I mean, this is just one of these things that happen. So when you test really young kids, 
you know, they come in and we understand that you don't know what you're going to get. So they're different on different days and maybe they napped, maybe they didn't nap. So this kid comes in and he's super withdrawn and he's maybe about two, two and a half. He's not interacting at all. And one of the primary tests for autism is called the ADAS. And for young kids, it's all toy-based. And these are toys that are really fun, like a bubble machine. And you are filling the room with bubbles. And you're using a pop rocket and a remote control bunny and things that would really pull for a child to want to play with. And he is not interacting with any of this stuff. So I'm like, what is going on with this kid? What's wrong with him? So there's a snack task where you offer a snack. And the purpose of this is to see how they request or how they ask for things that are really desirable to them. And he wasn't really that interested in the snacks or maybe he tried to eat one. And then his mom gave him a bottle because it's not uncommon for a child with autism to still be rigid with what they will drink out of, right? So he's two and a half, two, he wants to drink out of the bottle. This kid (laughs) sat back and threw up a pile of Vaseline this big onto the desk. That had been like sitting somewhere in his esophagus, okay? And the mom and, and you know, so kids on the spectrum or with neurodevelopmental disabilities will eat weird stuff, mm-hmm. pica, right? This kid had a thing for aquaphor and his mom was like, oh yeah, he got into the aquaphor this morning. Okay, this aquaphor, this big, had been sitting here the whole time. So no wonder he's not interacting with me. And I'm wondering like you know, what's going on with him? Is he depressed? Has he been Mm -hmm. abused? And there it is. There's a pile of slime on the table in front of us. Man, that's, (laughs) that's pretty crazy. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. Not what I would expect to happen. Um, No, no. Just another day at the office. So the, the, the example of Six Flags made me think of this, but what are some of the kind of the most interesting fascinations that you've seen? Because this kind of happens with individuals with autism sometimes, you know, they get really... Oh my gosh. And yeah. I got to tell you, one of my favorite ones is not even a kid that I worked with, but one of my colleagues um, who was in a school with kids with autism doing a lot of very specific special needs work. And this kid's intense interest was Lee press on nails. I don't know if you even know or remember what those are. Again, I'm dating myself, which I'm fine with, but they're like tips that you press on your fingers. And this boy, all he wanted to do was paint these press on nails. Mm. And so what they would do is he would earn breaks to be able to have some time with that. Um, So, you know, that was always a really interesting one to me. I've seen all kinds of things. I mean, there's some common areas that that you certainly Roblox or video games or Pokemon. So you might have, you know, a, a kid once that I saw that he would only talk in the voice of Pikachu. And so you had to interact with him and allow him to talk like Pikachu. And that's just what he did. So that's super interesting. I had somebody recently that I worked with that um, likes to watch live action role plays of Minecraft and then write analyses of the live action role play. So they write papers analyzing Mm the character use and what they're doing. Yeah. So that was a really interesting one to me too. That is, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so kind of getting back to to the example uh, of the toothpaste and the feet. Um, so so but in both those situations, <laughs> like, I, um, like most people would have a serious like social reservation about, you know, bringing up the fact that, you know, somebody's feet are, is smelly or that their toothpaste is, is like smells very strong. So like what what kind of is it about autism that 
you know, sometimes lead to leads to this like lack of awareness of, you know, normal social boundaries. Yeah. So it's a difference. Again, I, I will bring it back to in how the brain is working, that it's prioritizing one experience over another. Hmm. So we'll hear about perspective taking or theory of mind, which will be a more technical term. Mm-hmm. And what it really is, is the focus on where my attention is, what's important to me, and what learning I'm combining with that, that then shapes my social either response or overture to someone else. And it is the fact that I am having a very intense experience right now, and I am not going to stop and think about how what I'm saying might impact you and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Mm. And I need to say it, or I'm going to say it, or I don't understand why you are are more important than what's on my mind. But, you know, I recently, Mac, began to kick around in my mind whether that's actually more natural and more pure Mm. than the way the rest of us have been socialized. Because Mm -hmm. what do I do? I hold it in. I Mm -hmm. stuff it. I don't say what's on my mind because I can't say what's on my mind because somebody might not like me or I might hurt their feelings. But what if? What if? It's actually more natural to just say it yeah. and not ha- not stop and consider other people. I don't know. Food for thought. Yeah, no, that, that's something I think I've kicked around in my mind a little bit too, right? If we were all just a little bit more straightforward and honest with each other, even if it was uncomfortable sometimes, you know, what kind of um, life and society would that lead to? Um, and I, the answer is I have no idea, but it's, it's interesting to think about um, for sure. I think in schools, it would lead to total anarchy because you'd have <laughs> students telling their teachers exactly what they think and why they weren't going to do something. And it would be mad chaos, <laughs> you know. So I will I will say that I guess some of these things do serve a purpose because there mm-hmm. is a pecking order and a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to our friends and our relationships, I don't know, you know, I think we should tell people that they have spinach in their teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've read a little bit. Uh, and and I, this is a topic I, I have like zero knowledge about. So this question is like d- just popped in my head. But um, it, what is this kind of this idea of theory of mind um, with autistic individuals? So this is something that mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of my brother who's diagnosed with um, ASD, but like and almost like a limitation to put yourself the ability to put yourself in, in other people's shoes. Is this like mm-hmm. a skill that autistic people possess? Um if they do possess it, is it like, is it limited? Is it different than, you know, what we experience? Um, so what, what's kind of the, the idea there? So I'm going to answer that the best I can without having a bunch of research or technical ways to describe hmm. it. So, you know, we see this in ADHD too, this difference of perspective taking, but it seems that perhaps the mechanism in autism is a bit different or stronger than what there is in ADHD. So, it is a difficulty in being able to feel or project what it's like to be someone else. And that's a real cognitive difference that may be related to how the brain actually works. Mm. That may really mean that the person can't, they can't experience that. They can't think that way or Mm -hmm. try it on in their mind. They can't pull up what it felt like for them and attach that and then apply that to how that might feel for someone else. And that must be really difficult, right? To literally not be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes because how do you learn what it's like to be someone else if you you really can't 
mentally go there because your brain hasn't developed that perspective taking ability, which is a cognitive skill of development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of to wrap up as a last question, and I know this is a big question, but um, what kind of advice would you give to say a parent, a child or, or sibling, like somebody who's very close to somebody who was just diagnosed with um, autism, just kind of general advice, what would you say? Yeah, I would say take a minute and give yourself some grace. Mm -hmm. No matter how you're feeling about that or thinking about that, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And to really spend some time with that and like actually pause. And when you're ready, move toward getting more information. You know, I think a lot of times, I guess as a feelings doctor, we try to skip over the feelings and just go into problem solving or doing. And the reality is I think it's really important to create space for whatever it is that it brings up in us. Mm. Um, again, as I've said, I've got siblings, families, um, kids that have been diagnosed with autism, they're in different places with that. But to just have some grace for yourself and then go read more because it's not a one size fits all. There's a lot of, obviously, cause I geeked out on some of it. There's a lot of information out there that help it make sense. And you have to figure out, and I do this with kids in my office, what fits for you and what doesn't fit for you. And, and start to create those lists for yourself. Start to understand maybe why your brother does what he does when he does what he does. Because if you can understand that, you can put yourself in his shoes and you can see the world from his perspective and it will open you up to helping structure an environment or figure out a risk, how you want to respond that is very supportive of who that person is. Um, and can also help you feel connected to somebody that maybe sometimes you might feel disconnected of mm. from, um, because I think it just opens up a whole new world of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective on it. First kind of taking a second for yourself, like the idea of, putting your oxygen mask on before, you know, you can put on, you know, your child's or whatever. And then, and then taking the steps to, you know, better understand and taking the steps for empathy, um, which is definitely, you know, the next most important thing. Um, so Dr. Garner, thank you for coming on. Uh, this has been a Mac. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been a great conversation. I think we covered a wide variety of topics, uh, which was awesome. Um, so thank you very much. Okay. My pleasure. Take care.